listening to a Called Collective podcast, where we seek to equip the next generation of ministry leaders. The Called Collective produces multiple podcasts, which you can find in the description below. To learn more about The Called Collective, visit our website at thecalledcollective.org or check us out on Instagram at The Called Collective. Greetings and welcome to Fresh Text. Fresh Text is a weekly podcast where we study a scripture passage together, usually a pair of scholars, pastors um, discussing it. We hope it'll be enjoyable and edifying for all, but especially equipping for pastors or teachers who are preparing sermons or lessons in the upcoming weeks. I'm your host, John Drury. I'm professor of New Testament and spiritual formation at Indiana Wesleyan University in Marion, Indiana. And my guest this week is Sarah Hinlicky wilson Sarah is a pastor of Tokyo Lutheran Church. And so we are recording remotely all the way from Tokyo while I'm here in Indiana. Sarah's no stranger to the show. She's on uh, every couple months. We've had her on over the last couple years, and she's a great guest and an old friend of mine. I love that she's on. If you want to find her in terms of resources that you might be interested, you might want to check out Theology and a Recipe. Just search that, and you'll find that uh, great uh, newsletter. And her podcast is Queen of the Sciences, which is a conversation podcast that she does with her uh, theologian father. So yeah, uh, we hope you enjoyed the show uh, today. If you find yourself enjoying it, just make sure to press that share button on your podcast player app so you can pass it along to others so they can find out as well. Thanks for listening and enjoy this conversation with Sarah. All right, so let's, uh, here we are. We're looking at Matthew 25, verses 14 through 30. Uh, Sarah, would you be willing to read that passage? Matthew 25, 14 through 30. I will, and this is in my own idiosyncratic translation. Yay! Yay. (laughs) Four, it's like a person traveling abroad who called his own servants and handed over to them his belongings. And to one he gave five talents, and to one two, and to one one, to each according to his own power, and he traveled abroad. Immediately going off, the one having five talents toiled with them and gained another five. In the same way, the one having two gained another two. But the one having one, going aside, dug earth and hid his lord's piece of silver. But after much time, the Lord of those slaves comes and reckons accounts with them. And coming forward, the one having five talents offered another five talents, saying, Lord, you handed over to me five talents. Behold, I gained another five talents. His Lord said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your Lord. And also coming forward, the one with two talents said, Lord, you handed over to me two talents. Behold, I gained another two talents. His Lord said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your Lord. And also coming forward, the one having received one talent said, 
Lord, I knew you, that you are a severe person, harvesting where you did not sow, and gathering up whence you did not scatter. And being afraid, having gone away, I buried your talent in the earth. Behold, you have what is yours. But the Lord answering said to him, Evil and shrinking, irksome, wincing, resentful servant, you know, do you, that I harvest where I do not sow and gather up whence I did not scatter? Then it was necessary for you to lay my silver pieces with the bankers, and on coming, I would have received what is mine with interest. Therefore, take away from him the talent and give it to the one having ten talents. For to all those having, they will be given, and they will superabound. But of the one not having, also what he has will be taken from him. And throw out the useless servant into the outer darkness. There there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right. We definitely need to pray. (laughs) We need to pray. (laughs) So let's pray. Father, uh, we give you thanks for your son, Jesus. We give you thanks uh, that he is the word made flesh and that he has the words of eternal life. We need to remember that, especially when his words are strange, as these are. Uh, It's a famous parable, and we've found all kinds of ways to make it uh, safe and palatable and practical, but really looking at it head on today, it's just so obvious this is a strange one. So we need your help, Lord. Uh, Grant us your spirit to guide us in this this conversation, uh, that we may uh, find our way into bearing witness and bearing the word well in view of this text before us. We ask this all in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Well, of course, I'm bounding over with questions about your translation, and we can either start there, or if you want to just make some initial commentary of what you were noticing, uh, that's well, just as I good of a place to start. Well, I think we should do our usual yeah. Greek geek out to start with, because it's always fun. <laughs> Yay. So let me start with like some really unimportant things that are just fun. And then we'll go to the the heavy ones. Good. good. So, okay. So I was curious, our word talent as an aptitude actually does come from this measure of weight for currency in the ancient world. And apparently a talent at this time was 57 pounds of pure silver. So that's a lot of money. Yes. And yeah, that's where we get our word for for talents through a long, you know, process. Another fun thing is in verse 18, where the servant hides his Lord's piece of silver. Of course, it has that Greek root word. It's ekrypsin. So I thought this is the original cryptocurrency. Har ah. har. Har har. Yeah. yeah. Okay. But no, that's good. That's good. Yeah. Yeah. And this is what happened. This is what ended up happening to crypto about a year ago, right? <laughs> this went to nothing. So. <laughs> no interest. <laughs> Also, the calling uh, the Lord a severe person. It is anthropos, yes. not aner. It's usually translated man because it's talking to a man, but it is anthropos. And the word severe is scleros, as in sclerotic or atherosclerosis. So it's where we get the medical word for the hardening of arteries, scleros. Ah, yeah, and like multiple sclerosis, right? Exactly. Yeah, exactly. okay. Yeah, so that's where that comes from. Wow. And then there's this other word, skneros, which I used four adjectives for because I couldn't. And there uh, were yeah, lots. That was where suggested. I wanted to go. Okay, yeah, yeah. Right. 
Yeah, well, I think I think actually what the word means depends on how you interpret the entire parable. Absolutely. Everything so I hangs on together, it. together shrinking, irksome, wincing and resentful. That seemed to me to kind of capture what it said. What so verse I think was we that should, one in? Uh, that's 26. So I think we should like uh, yes. asterisk that and come back at the end of the interpretation because it's the word really depends on what the whole thing Means. Will you do your list again, just so I can have it Shrinking, for later? irksome, wincing, resentful. Wow. Yeah, not, none of them like suggest an obvious one-word synonym. So I think that itself is very telling about the difficulty of nailing down what 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 is the sin yeah. that is being identified here. And okay, and then just a little other fun Greek. The word for banker, it's in the dative. It's trapezitis, as in trapezoid. And I guess trapezoid is from trapezium, which means table, four sides and feet. And yes. I guess the idea is that bankers work at tables. And maybe at the time, table work, desk work was unusual enough that you would be identified by working at it. Unlike now when we all work at desks. It wouldn't be very specific to say, give it to someone who works at a desk. Okay, yeah, exactly. well, that's a lot of. <laughs> yeah, right. But then it was like, oh, you mean a banker? You know, right. Yeah. Right, because even a scribe would not work at a desk at this time. Scribes yeah. worked at on their, if you the way you'd copy text at this time is you'd have it in your lap, and you would read a couple sentences, commit uh -huh. it to memory, set it aside, and pick up the other book and write it down. No kidding, right. so, they yes, must have had terrible very, neck pain. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So it's just not. It was not a desk, and and that's important for us when we're doing like textual criticism work. To not like imagine someone, a modern scholar at a desk yeah, yeah, right, with right, text right. out and the kind of mistakes that happen. So we make mistakes too when right. we're typing and carrying. We mm. tend to project our own kinds of typos. Their typos are of a different sort. Right. Um, oh, that makes a lot of sense. It's kind of like we can't imagine an oral tradition that preserves something accurately because we don't have to remember anything. But yeah. if you go to living cultures that don't have writing now, they remember things verbatim. Without difficulty. But scribal work in the first century had an orality to it, even when it was being handwritten. Because there right. would be the, the reciting of it in the mind. That makes perfect And then writing sense. it down. Isn't that great? Of course. Of course. I just wow. read about that recently and it was like, oh, that actually really helps, you know. Yeah. Um, and of course, that explains why mo the ma vast majority of the textual issues between the Gospels are just harmonizing elements. Sure. And it's not sure. that they're intentionally going in and tinkering. Yeah. It's that they remember the other version. And so they yeah, add like, a little detail. Well, we do that too, all mm -hmm. the time. All the time. Yeah. When you're yeah. retelling a story, you do it all the time. Right. We just have this notion of the text as this fixed thing <laughs> yeah, in right, front right. of us that you look at with your eye. Yeah. And so we know the difference between my embellishments and the text itself. Right. Supposedly, that's important to us. You know what I mean? Yeah. But, <laughs> Interesting. Yeah. Interesting. Anyway, sorry to go off of that, but it, it, it kind of no, connects really, to the desk. Because no, in the end, it's like. Well, of course, there's lots of jobs that are at a desk. Nope, yeah, nope not, then. not then. Not then, Not right. then. And then the last thing is just in the last verse, there is the outer darkness. Not quite sure what that means, but I was yes. just um, struck by it. But then there's also gnashing of teeth. And I was finally like, what the heck does it mean to gnash teeth? Do you gnash your teeth? I don't gnash my teeth. I know there's like, you know, people have sort like ticks or something. Yeah. yeah, but like gnash seems to be more like biting without anything to bite down. Yeah, on. hostile or something. Yeah. yeah. But then I looked it up. There are references to gnashing of teeth in, and the word for teeth is odontone, like an, an uh, um, periodontist. Yeah. Right. But so Job, the Psalms, and Lamentations all talk about it. But in the New Testament, 
Matthew is the one obsessed with gnashing teeth. There are four uses, sorry, six uses of the phrase. There's one para- exact parallel in Luke, and then there is one reference in Acts. The uh, the people listening to St- Stephen's sermon gnash their teeth at him, mm. and honestly, who can blame them? That was um, not the most uh, loving evangelical appeal one can imagine. So, um, but anyway, Matthew's Matthew's really into the gnashing of teeth. And they're usually at the end of the story, right? And someone gets thrown out (laughs) gnashing of teeth. And they lived unhappily ever after. Yeah, yeah. This is because it's like the stock phrase, the inverted stock phrase of happily ever after. Exactly. Is weeping and gnashing of teeth. Weeping and gnashing of teeth. (laughs) That's great. So you said the only Lucan one is in the parallel to this passage? Not to this one, but to another another Ah. teeth gnashing in Matthew. Ah, yeah. So interesting. Okay. So those oh are the kind of like, you know, just fun and games, Greek things. Did you have any like deeper ones that you, I have, I have just one that I think could be significant. Well, let's do yours. Mine was going to be the the one that you couldn't decide on. Okay. Uh, okay. So, which like you said, is dependent on the interpretation of the whole passage. So actually right. starting there maybe doesn't really help. Okay. Uh, well, okay. Or maybe so that's this... the, maybe we should start there, but you do, do yours though. Let's do yours. Okay. So this could be classic case of reading too much into it, but I was really struck that the verb paradokin comes up a lot, mm-hmm. which is handing mm-hmm. over. And that is a very weighted term because it's both the word for betrayal and the word for tradition. Like yep. paradosis is the word you use in theology for handing on the tradition. And as speaking back to orality and textuality, the tradition of what became scripture is there right from the start. You know, they are mm-hmm. co-terminous realities. So in the first verse, the the person traveling hands over to his servants. Also, I decided to say servants rather than slaves because I know it's it's ancient slavery, but we hear modern and race-based yep. slavery. So I'm just going to go with servant for now. We can discuss that too if you want. But anyway, so he hands over to them his belongings. And I was thinking in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says, I handed on to you what was of first importance. Yes. And so I was wondering if there is some, you know, clearly there's some sort of allegory, you know, or metaphor going through this whole thing. And I realized that because of the word talent, I had just sort of implicitly always understood the story about, like, making use of your own God-given gifts. I yes. think it's just a natural confusion with the word. I mean, the word comes yeah. from that. But then I suddenly thought, well, what if this is actually a parable of, of apostolicity to those people to whom has been entrusted the most valuable thing that the Lord has handed over to them to carry on, then that makes it a very, to me, a very different kind of parable. Yeah, I think we should take very seriously that possibility for a few contextual reasons. So I'm just going to offer my pitch for why we should at least play with that idea. This will aid in the Reply to the objection, oh, you're making a mountain out of a molehill with one word. <laughs> Words aren't magic like that, right? I mean, but the, the word can help you notice something interesting because that is a powerful word. I mean, it's used, Paul used it also for Jesus handing himself uh, or delivering himself over on behalf of, for our sins, right? It's used that way. So it's, it's used all over. And when Jesus hands over the kingdom to his father in 1 Corinthians 15, mm-hmm. uh, same chapter later. So there's, this is a, Really, there, and that's maybe even more close to this, the sense of there's an authority element with a handing over, putting someone in charge of something when you hand it over, paradidomai. 
But the contextual stuff is, you know, we're here at the end. This is the kind of second to last pericope in this extended teaching of Jesus. And, you know, we're not going to get Jesus in his teaching mode again before the Great Commission that happens in 28. So even though there's a lot that's going to happen between now and then, there's no extended mission instructions at that scene. It's just go, right? And so one way of reading some of this in some of these texts is to try to think about that context, right, of what's to come. So the possibility that this is talking, addressing, not just kind of a generic Christian life kind of thing, but specifically addressing his disciples, soon to be apostles that are going to be sent out, right? And what are you going to do with this? This authority I'm handing over to you, this teaching specifically in Matthew would be, you know, go to all the nations and make them disciples, make them students, right? <laughs> make students of the nations and teach them all that I have taught you, right? So there's very much that teaching authority that's being granted. So, I mean, spoiler alert for listeners who are regular listeners uh, who are kind of listen to this in real time next week. We have the the sheep and the goats story, and I've already recorded that one going out of sequence. Sorry, <laughs> movie magic. We don't do it in order. Uh, <laughs> and and Sarah and I discussed, that, but it's relevant to this discussion. So that's another Sarah, and she uh, she and I discussed at great length. The that's a an important interpretive option for that passage too. That it's not generic Christian living. It's specifically how you treat apostles people that Jesus has sent, do you right, welcome right, them right. or not? Right. Yeah. And yeah, it's yeah. In some ways addressed to the apostles. Hey, don't worry. I got your back. I'm going to, mm. I'm going to, I'm going to reward the people who take care of you. Right. And bunch the ones who reject you. So if you, if that reading is plausible there, which is very plausible of that story, then that same plausibility reading should kick in here earlier in the same chapter is that this is not just a generic, any interesting thing God gives you as his creator or, you know, kind of framing it in terms of like sp some kind of spiritual gifts language or something like in first Corinthians, but thinking of it more, much more narrowly in terms of the apostolic teaching, the handing on, what are you going to do with it? You know? So anyway, that was just a long way of saying, I agree that that's a, that's a possible <laughs> reading, but there, right. there's some contextual factors that I think would support that. I hadn't thought of it till you said it, but it totally fits the literary context. You know, that makes sense also, what you're saying, with the sheep and the goats parable, because I, I have read, as I'm sure this is what you talked with your other guest about, is is the idea that this is not a, you know, like, oh, this, this is the uh, the good works passage that <laughs> gets rid of all the faith-based language of the New Testament, but actually it's specifically about people who have no other relationship to Christ coming in contact with his messengers and, you know, that is how they contact Christ, not not him directly. So if that's the case, if it's centered on the fate of the apostles, this is telling them how you are as apostles are supposed to behave. The next one is about what will happen to you once you go out and actually do it. So that would, to me, that makes a sense of the through line of what's happening in these in these stories. Yeah, and their receptivity, the gospel. And here it's like, what are you going to do with the gospel? And then all of a sudden, burying it seems really dumb. <laughs> right. You know, like if you think of if you put this chapter 25 in a missiological context, which everyone does with chapter 10 of Matthew, of course, where he's giving those instructions when he sends them to the lost sheep of Israel. Although, ironically, there's possible 
it's possible to not think of chapter 10 as the kind of final instructions because they mm-hmm. haven't been sent to all the nations yet, you know? Right, right. Now that they're sent to all the nations, maybe this is the more relevant material. You've got this great secret. The secret's out now. Don't bury it, right? Yeah. Don't and bury you know, it. I think another, another point that could support this is, and against the my personal gifts or my personal talents reading, is that... The two who invest, they get exactly the same back. And that really struck me. Five gets exactly five back. Two gets exactly two back. And I, I, I wondered, I mean, again, maybe making too much out of a small thing, but I wonder if that's the point is if you put the gospel out there to do its work, it will take care of doubling itself. You know, just go out there and do something with it. And, and then it. So and there's no difference in the percentage of return between either of the first two figures. They both double only, which seems to me pointing to the thing itself doing the work rather than the uh. skill of the of the trader doing the gain. And what's interesting then is then in the third case, the master says basically, you know, you you could have just done the bare minimum and at least gotten me some interest on it. You yeah, know? at least. Right. And I, that, that you know, this is a whole nother line of interpretation, but how did the church's long forbidding of usury deal with this text when the Lord himself <laughs> says, if I can't get a profit, I at least want my interest on it? Um, that I, I did not investigate the whole history of interpretation of this passage, but I think that'd be an interesting line to follow. Well, that's a perfect transition to question I want to pitch then in our second segment. So I'll drop it and then we'll take a break and come back. But that that text is primarily a problem for that if we, as the church usually does, assume that this is a one-to-one comparison, that this Lord just is God slash Jesus, right? Right. And I think interrogating that assumption might also produce some insight. So let's, let's, let me drop that thought in there and let's take a quick break and then come back and explore some more. And we're back. Welcome back to Fresh Text. I'm here with my guest, uh, Sarah Henlicky Wilson, and we are looking at Matthew chapter 24, uh, verses 14. Oh, excuse me. Did I say 24? 25, verses 14 through 30, the uh, so-called parable of the talents. So let me just, I want to highlight one thing picking up on where we were at earlier. The opening Lack of kingdom of heaven is like, I think is important. Um, A number of, you know, back in 25, it starts, you know, the kingdom of heaven can be likened to, right? And here, I mean, it's really strange. It's just, you know, how'd your translation, how'd you do it? Or it's like a person traveling abroad who called his own servants. Yeah, it doesn't it doesn't specify him as a king. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, he's called a lord, but that's probably just the honorific lord. Doesn't Gurier, have the master, yeah, sir, the, mis- the mister. <laughs> yeah, that doesn't yeah. have to have the re- theological. It could, but it doesn't have to. Yeah, but don't you think so, they would use that that oh, language sneakily? You know, so like you would trade on Shh. thinking it's just an ordinary dude, and then all of a sudden you hear, oh wait a minute, wait, what, what lord am I talking about here? My yeah. landlord or the lord? Possible, but not required. That's all I want to say in that right, regard. Because right. Curio, I mean, it's all over. It's just the way. Right. You, and, and there's just that common tendency 
that the most powerful person in the story is always God. Right. <laughs> that does reveal a little bit about us. Well, <laughs> right? but also, you know, it's not wrong, God, but yeah. yeah. In these stories, he's often absent, though. I mean, in that respect, yeah. it does look like the way Jesus talks about God a lot. He's just stepping out of the frame for a while and seeing what happens in his absence. So I just thought to look, well, since we talked about what comes after this parable, I'm looking at what comes before. And mm -hmm. chapter 25 starts, then the kingdom of heaven shall be compared to 10 maidens. So it's the story of them. That one concludes, watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour, and then immediately, for it will be as when. So mm -hmm. there seems to be, so it's it's not directly prefaced with the kingdom of heaven, but there does seem to be some kind of context. logical continuity with, I mean, the, the Ten Virgins is also an alarming parable, which is hard to take. But, I mean, we, we don't need to go into the whole thing here. I mean, I, I have come to read that as a parable of, well, rejecting grace. It, it's not about um, preparation for grace, but actually grace always being on offer and treating it contemptuously. Yeah. So that that would be interesting because then now now this is all making sense. If the, all of these parables are really addressed to the apostles and missionaries yes. who will come forth, then you can see a much clearer line of continuity, and it's much more specific in its critique. It's not about. I, I think for Americans, it's so easy to read all these parables as make good use of what God has given you as, as in like hustling, <laughs> you yeah. know, what, get, and get, self get your hustle to have your oil, you know, yeah. hustle with your talents and yeah. hustle in making sure you're really good at, you know, uh, caring for the poor, right. That becomes right. one more hustle. <laughs> yeah. And then all, all of that is entirely not about the thing. It's, it's not about grace and it's not about other people. It's about making sure I can exploit grace and other people in order to secure myself. And, yes. that, and that reminds me of Jesus saying earlier in this gospel, look, if you're going to take that attitude, just make friends with unjust mammon. You'll get a better deal out of them than yep. you ever will out of me. Yep. Yeah. So actually, it's occurring to me when we put the three together that if we are going to, again, without allegorizing, at least it's a parable, it's casting light in some way, even as it casts a little darkness, the, the central characters in these don't really work in the larger context as teachings about God. They really are about Jesus specifically, right? Not just about his father, but about him because he's about to leave, right? And that's not just where it falls in Matthew in terms of the narrative, but also where it falls in Matthew in terms of the teaching because the previous chapter is all about future things, right? So it's kind of his parallel to, to Mark uh, 13. Mm -hmm the little apocalypse there is then in 24 and Matthew. And so then these three, these three teachings, um, since it doesn't use the word parable, I'm trying to speak more, uh, vaguely, but these, these comparisons, these teachings, these stories, the first one is the, the bridegroom. And of course we already have language of Jesus comparing himself to the being a groom in the fasting controversy mm -hmm. earlier in the book. And you even have their Lord, Lord, uh, open the door to us, verse 11. Uh, so you've got the courier, courier language that then gets used now in this passage. And I want to, and then he, it is, and then he's son of man and he's called king in verse 34. I'm thinking of the next passage that we'll go into next week, but just the notion that it makes more sense than in this, it's not just the kind of like deistic absent God who gave us 
talents and we should use them and he'll judge us about right. how we used them, which is basically the, you know, there's that weird kind of like officially against deism, but totally deistic in the way it thinks like kind of Christianity that at least I was raised in. You know what I mean? Like, so whereas like the parable of the talents, the absence is specifically the fact that Jesus himself is about to ascend into heaven and not mm -hmm. be available. Right. Right. Like, right. He actually fits this paradigm a lot better than any kind of generic teaching about the father who, what mm. Jesus has to say about the father is that he's like actually really into the details of every little thing that's happening, right? He's watching right, the sparrows right, right. and right. So right. his teaching on the father is that he's very present every day. Mm. Um, so I wonder if there's some preparation for his absence mm. that would kind of fit here. I don't know if that rings true. It'd well, be then, another confirmation of your earlier pitch that this is yeah. about the traditioning process and the handing on of the gospel. Well, and then that would fit really well if, you know, as we as we both teach and believe the word of God, both in the Jesus sense and in the scripture and proclamation sense, continue to be powerful and effective. So Jesus, if he's the, the person traveling abroad, if he is not physically in the picture, the talents are him. And it, it's the word yes. and the gospel continuing to do its work. Um, if you bury it, it will not be able to do its work. <laughs> but as long as you just take out and try something, it, it does itself. Like, again, if, if that's what the, the the doubling in both cases is about, it's not the skill of the apostle, but actually this is Jesus' presence. So carry it out. Let it do its thing. Don't put it under a bushel. I mean, it's not irrelevant that a talent is a huge sum of money. <laughs> of precious metal. Yeah. I mean, this is, we're talking 10, 20 years of wages. Yeah. This is not an amount of money that, that these uh, servants would probably ever have on their own, which is why actually calling, thinking of our create, you know, our, our natural abilities as talents is mm. a little like fishy. Little ecosystem. Right? Yeah. It's like, really? You're worth that much? Right? This is, this is, this is, this is not, this is to, to use lingo from our theological training. This is, this is grace, not nature, right? This is this super <laughs> right, right. abundant. This is a donation being granted mm. that's way beyond what we could ever acquire. That right? connects to the yes. verb. Okay. That verb, tell me, if you know more about this verb. I couldn't get much out of it, but that has to be the whole point, right? In 29, to, for to all those having, they will be given, yes. things will be given to them, and they will parry, sue, yes. Tell me about this. Well, it, I mean, it appears a lot. Oh, does so, it? I, so I didn't recognize it. Okay, tell us Oh, tell maybe us I'm maybe I'm mistaking it for a different word. No, you know Greek way better than I do. Oh, I don't know about that. You're a New Testament professor, of course you do. Uh, I'm fine in my way. I use an um, online interlinear, so I cheat. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Me too sometimes. Um, it's what I'm doing right now to make sure I don't say something stupid. They're both passive. Parasif you know, I'm obsessed with yeah, passives. That's right? clear. And I did not that's, translate it in a passive sense. I couldn't figure out how to do that. How to say it. Yeah. Well, I mean, it could be middle. So that's, that's kind of hard to spot because we're not, because that voice doesn't, barely exists in English. Right. It's just not a way we speak. I'm just taking a look at it because I don't want to. We're in 25. Look, I, I, I clicked 24 again. Why do I think this is in chapter 24? This is great radio. <laughs> <laughs> Christmas Eve and Christmas Day, you know, the 24th and the 25th. That's yeah, why. Yeah, that's, that's why. I like that. That's a, good, that's a good guess. Yeah, it is passive. Oh, my heavens. 
Interesting. Tell us, we're dying. What did you find? I will. I will. No, it's very common. Um, I thought it was the word it was. So this is the word used um, in the Sermon on the Mount for oh. righteousness surpassing <gasps> the righteousness oh. of the scribes and Pharisees. Yeah, I knew you'd like that. Ooh. Um, and of course, this quote, the one who has, he'll have even more, also appears in Matthew 13, because that's clearly like a Jesus saying. It shows up in all the Gospels, but in all mm. kinds of different contexts. So mm-hmm, it's one of, mm-hmm. so it's a it's a classic candidate for a notion of a kind of just a saying that's right. like in search of a story to be put into, you know? Right. Um, Even the skeptics ha- believe Jesus said, said this. Yeah, yeah. It'd, it'd be on a good list uh, in that regard. Um, it's the stuff that, uh, it's the excess fragments at the feeding of Ooh. the 5,000. Nice. So it's a, it's a pretty powerful word in that regard. So it's, the, it's surplus. It's the surplus. That's mm. maybe the best way to think of it. It's used in Luke when Jesus is commenting on the widow's might, mm. right? And it's often translated, they gave out of their wealth. Um, but it's it's more, oh, it's more precise. Surplus. It's their surplus, mm-hmm, their extra. So it, the stuff they didn't need, their margin, you know? Huh. So it had no effect on their budget. <laughs> it was their right, extra. Right. So, yeah, and of course, like whenever, whenever Paul says like abounding, mm-hmm, abounding mm-hmm. in grace or something like that, abounding in love, abounding in hope, it's this word. This is it's great. Very frequent in Paul. It's all over right. Paul. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen, fourteen, fifteen, sixteen, uh, thirty, almost thirty uses in Paul's letters. So. Amazing. Anyway. Well, clearly I need to spend some time thinking about the gospel of superabundance. But okay, so Yeah, to, yeah, but it, that that links it yeah. to this I like it, it it's yeah. a nice way to play with your cuz the fact is if people are going to allegorize this in terms of our own personal talents, uh well, mm-hmm. why don't we allegorize it in another direction? It's yeah. more about the gospel, even <laughs> yeah. if it's not the exact precise meaning that Matthew had in mind when he wrote it down. It's like right. the the context is inviting that because of this kind of missiological framing that you can put this whole chapter in yeah oh that's great and that that starts to really help me think about when we get to the sermon starters how to i'll I'll hold up for there but that that makes a lot of sense and then right what is that that really shifts again the whole thing so well all right i think before we we get to interpreting it for preaching we need to back up to this accusation against the lord of being a hard man yes who is apparently apparently a bit of a thief (laughs) <laughs> or or uh, cheats or something like that. Clearly an ethical um, accusation being leveled against him by the shrinking, irksome, wincing, and resentful servant. Yeah, so is is it possible that the error that he's making, one possible read of it, especially if we see this Lord as representing our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, right? Then we're gonna, I wonder if, is the statement true that this is what the master is like, right? Because those those words are not the narrator speaking. Those words are, right? So they're the servant's explanation of his behavior. And could it be that his behavior was rooted in assumptions about what the master's like that aren't true? Because does he say, Verse 26, you know, but his master replied, 
you you could translate this you you wicked and whatever slave yes i i i reap where i don't sow yes i gather where i don't scatter but it's possible for this to be a question uh, a, a rhetorical question and the nrsv actually does that you knew did you that i reap where i did not sow and gather where i did not scatter you could take it as Oh, so is Lord, that so? Well, then at least. <laughs> right. The Lord grants right? the premise and said, well, if that on was your premise, premise, you still could have done this instead of what you did. That's so you're possible... right. It, it isn't a direct refutation. I don't know. It's just something to consider. Hmm. Uh, because at, at the end of the day, like. You know, I can't I can't get my head and maybe maybe I just need to let this be a difficult passage that I can't solve. <laughs> But I can't that get my happen. head. If we're gonna read it with this this courier as the curios Jesus, mm-hmm. right? Um, I can't get my head around this being a compliment that he reaps where he didn't sow and gathered where he didn't <laughs> scatter seed. I mean that that directly contradicts what he says in Matthew twenty eight: "All authority in heaven's been given to me." Right? So right. like he has all authority. This he there is no right. there is no field he can reap that isn't his. Right. 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 So it doesn't it doesn't really fit the character. It might fit the character of the master here because we didn't know what he went to go do. Mm. But there was no clue at the beginning that this was a particularly, again, we need to be careful. The Lucan version of this is very different. Right. So this right, is an right. example where, you know, a little color from the other gospel ain't going to help. It's, it's, I mean, <laughs> the, the measurement is different. The numbers are different. There's a whole right. other side story of some some enemies in another city. Mm-hmm. So we just got to, I think we just got to leave that one out of the equation here. We're going to get lost in this passage. The only person who, you know, who makes these assertions directly about the master are this servant who we're not Mm. inclined to trust given Mm. the information we have. I don't know. What do you think about that? Maybe you want to push back on that, but. Well, I mean, it is, it is striking that the accusation is never directly refuted, just a different line of action drawn from it. I think where I got looking at this, the key phrase for me is this, the servant saying, behold, you have what is yours. Yeah. So I think what he's saying is I have passed judgment on what you are entitled to. And, um, and here, this was yours to begin with. It's still yours now. I didn't do anything with it. I didn't make it less, but I didn't make it more. And I think behind that is this whole world of, of maybe this is exactly the, I'm, I'm just going to assume from here on out that it is talking about Jesus. If that's the case, then this is somebody who assumes that Jesus does not have all the rights and all the authority to which he is entitled because Jesus' identity is still heavily under dispute at this point. And so this is someone who apparently is masquerading in Jesus' name, but is hedging his bets and not thinking he, everything is his. And so then and so so Jesus says, okay, even if you came to that conclusion about what is mine, what is mine deserved at least the interest, at least something, some more respect than you gave it than, than um, bearing it on the earth. It's almost like you're saying, okay, maybe you cannot grant that I and the Father are one. I know that's John's language, but at least you should grant that I am 
the rabbi, the teacher, you know, the the sent one on some level and given me some return on that. And I, this might, again, be reading too much into it. But in verse 27, when he's talking about that, you should have put it with the bankers. And then it says oncoming I and it is the pronoun ego would mm-hmm. have received what is mine with interest. And it's, uh, for listeners out there, uh, Greek in Greek, you don't have to use the pronouns. That's, mm-hmm. It's implied already in the verb. So I just wondered if if it is, you know, uh, uh, emphasizing this is an assertion of authority and possession. I should have received what is mine with interest. And that is... And, and the I, what that, is mine of 27 links back to 25, right? Yes, You've received what is, what is yours. yours. Yeah. It's in the exact same phrasing, just as a personal pronoun there oh that's so good yeah i myself yeah and when i came i myself would have received what is mine with interest together with interest no that's good you behold you have what is yours Ooh, and you know the the parallel jumped out at me because all of them when they speak that's they have the first same first word iday behold they all start with behold the other two say, behold, another five talents I have gained. That's 20, 20. And then 22 is, behold, another two talents I have gained. And verse 25 is, behold, you have what is yours. No more, no less. It feels like <laughs> a slap in the face, doesn't totally, it? Totally. Yeah. Totally. Totally. Yeah. Well, the servant's wicked. Ponere, there's no way of getting around that. So the yeah, servant's that, not the good guy. That one is clear. It's the second word that's that's narrow. Shrinking, irksome, irksome wincing, wincing, resentful. Wincing and shrinking, resent. Ooh. Boy, oh boy. I mean, I get, yes. I get, I get the resentment. You never should yeah. have had this in the first place. You don't have a right to anything else. Everything you do is is theft and dishonesty. And um, I'm not going to let you enjoy or profit off of what is yours, even while pretending I'm respecting what is yours. That's that's the vibe I get from the servant. Yeah. And so then the shrinking and the wincing makes a certain sense, because like I said, if we if we're willing, since we know he's wicked <laughs> or evil or whatever, we however we want to translate Panera, Panera, we would that should color how much trust we put in his narrative Mm. about the master being so sclerotic, (laughs) (laughs) right? That he's so stiff and, and harsh. And he says, verse 25, I was afraid, Mm. right? So I wonder if there's an element of you were, you were too spooked, you know? Mm. So you were so afraid of me in your fear, you actually forgot to actually fear me, like fear, like take me seriously. Right. (laughs) Right. Right. Which would be to respect me. Yeah. Right. And to respect me enough that if I gave this to you, you were expected to do something with it. Right. Right. So you had the kind of the wrong kind of fear of the Lord. Right. Right. It was a, a shrinking kind, a wincing kind, a hiding kind of fear, the kind of fear of the Lord we find Adam and Eve having after the apple going and hiding in the bushes, mm. right? Oh, right, right. It's this yeah. kind of, right? This this inclination to withhold, um, hide. Mm. I feel like there's something there to play with, right? Um, you know, it. it I think uh, to to uh, invoke a little Luther here, though, not that I know of on this particular thing. You know, his big thing is you don't want God to be God. 
You don't, you know, and yeah. on some level, the servant doesn't want the Lord to have everything that he has. He just thinks it's it's wrong and unfair, and I don't want you to have it. And and again, right, fearing but not the right way. And mm-hmm. instead of, he assumes that the master is hard and to be feared. And then that puts me in mind of, you know, Luther says the introduction to the Lord's Prayer, our father, is to say he is a loving father who wants to hear from his loving children. Yeah. There's clearly no no love conversation happening. But what if it's not the Lord's fault for not d- demonstrating himself as an affectionate father, but something within the servant that cannot even recognize authority or affection either way when he sees them? And that's then he'd be sclerotic in his own way, unable yes. to hear a different message. Yeah, no, that's good. It goes back onto him that he's the one who's kind of stuck in the the a mindset. And I mean, it, you know, how what is speaking to a Lutheran right now? This might fit. I always like to kind of say, well, works righteousness is the system that God will use if it's the one we prefer. <laughs> you know, like, like, oh, okay, that's the standard. I mean, if this is right in Jesus' teaching. The measure by which you measure is the measure by which you will be measured, right? So if that's the measure you want to go with, okay, right? (laughs) Yeah. But you shouldn't choose that one. Don't choose it. I'm giving you some other options here. (laughs) Don't choose it. It's not my way. And I mean, that's the kind of punishment we're seeing here. It kind of, that would fit the tone of this whole passage. Like, oh, you think I'm a hard master? You know, well, here, I I mean, I'm, you know, then surely. Maybe you want me to be a hard master. Okay then I'll be the hard master. Okay, yeah. we can do that, you know? Yeah, Oh, we're, we're already cooking. Let's take a quick break and come back and keep exploring these implicit sermon starters that we've all already right, planted. All right. And we're back. Welcome back to Fresh Text. I'm here with my guest, Sarah Henley Wilson. We went for a nice long time in our uh, third segment there. I always lose track of time when Sarah's on. It's always a blast. Uh, so let's explore some sermon starters. Where would we want to go? I mean, we've already planted some seeds, but if if you were going to preach on this text, maybe you are preaching on this text at some point in the in the near or distant future. Um, what kind of angle would you go? At least where would you start? I mean, there's so much of our stuff we don't need to just rehash, but it's kind of like, right. what would be your way in? You know what I'm saying? Right. Like, how would you get there? Well, I think right now, the first thing I realize I'd have to do is set this parable between the one before and after and shift the focus from like personal and self-development <laughs> yeah. to the gospel's ability to develop itself. And okay. and so I think there there needs to be, I, I, I think this is the place, maybe a place for preachers to figure out how to talk to parishioners about their own apostolic calling that's not the mm. same as the ordained ministry and it shouldn't turn into a brow beating be a better evangelist invite your friends to church but there is there is i think what what it's trying to say is there is confidence that the gospel will do its own work if you don't get in its way like actually this the bad servant, the evil servant, had to work really hard to stop the gospel from doing its work. He had to go aside, <laughs> dig a hole, yeah. put it down in the earth, cover it over, and ignore it for a long time. Yeah, you're Whereas right. This- they do work, you know, a gersato, but it's just kind of just, it's just kind of thrown out there. Yeah, they yeah. just worked at it. <laughs> yeah, I just tried something. And look, it doubled itself. So it's not like you aren't, wow. you know— 
doing your apologetics courses and getting on online forums and arguing with atheists and, you know, like sneaking uh, invitations to church in some weird and awkward way. <laughs> like that's that's not what it's saying. There is a lot of confidence here in both all of this belongs to God anyway and God's precious treasure will do its own work. You you actually have to work, I think, pretty hard to turn into an evil, shrinking, irksome, wincing, resentful servant. Yeah, that's actually the active position because beca- be- the fact that there's two others indicates there's a kind of a, this is just the default setting. Hmm. You just put it to work and it doubles. Right, yeah, and yeah, when yeah, you yeah. And when you realize that a talent... There's a part of me, I know I translated this passage for Mandy once for something she was doing. And and I remember just leaving it Talanta. I just like she didn't want to translate it. And I gave her some options. I don't know what she right. decided, but so I just always 57 let her decide pounds of pure silver. <laughs> yeah, which even that's kind of inconceivable. I'm trying to think like, but but you know, if you think of it as years' wages for a for a day laborer, um, and that'd be a denarii. I mean, this is th- this is thousands and thousands of denarii, right? So mm-hmm. we're talking between ten and twenty years. I'll just pick a number, twelve. So, like, say it's twelve years' wages, right? Mm-hmm. So, five talanta <laughs> is sixty years' wages, right? A lifetime, millions of dollars, and that's right. what he's starting with, and <laughs> <Right>? it doubles. <laughs> uh-huh. It doubles. Which is actually inconceivable. It's actually kind of bonkers. I think the original hearers and original readers of this text are just immediately going like, whoa, it's like a miracle story, right? <laughs> yeah, right. It isn't Better like- than crypto. Whoa. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, this is just inconceivable what this is doing. And, and I think it's important to hear that because it, it, hmm. it suggests this more grace, abundance- this huge, beautiful thing that's just doing its own work, right? And you're right. co-laboring, you're you're contributing by mm-hmm. your activity, but your activity is merely cooperating with something that's doing its own work. Right. You're, like you said, not getting in the way of it, right? right? Yeah. And it actually takes an effort to go find a secret place and dig it in. And a 57, did you say 57 or 67 pounds? 57 pounds. 57 pounds of pure silver. That The digging now, that's a deep hole because that's large <laughs> that's a big lump <laughs> that's yeah, large yeah. right so yeah. that was a lot of work it's interesting it's not that one worked mm. he's not lazy laziness yeah. isn't the issue here yeah different servants are lazy but not this guy yeah laziness is not the matter yeah no he's um, refusing it's not that other, he doesn't the other guys want... come off a little actually lazier i just put it out there <laughs> faithful this is cool faithful but it's like whoa just like your money's magic master yeah right which it is i mean that's the point too yeah that's the point so i think that really helps then interpret the very alarming for to all those who have they will be given more and they will superabound. so you know there's that what is it the um is it the Pareto principle? No, it's something else. But the the tendency of systems over time to accumulate all in one direction and on the other end to yes. be impoverished, right? That is just yes. a known problem in societies and economics in, I think, even the physical structure of the universe. You know, like planets coalesce and then there's tons of empty space in between, right? It's the, re- it's the reason why the Jubilee year would have even been thought of. Right. And why you'd have to keep doing it every 50 years. That would yeah, only make exactly. sense if it's just inevitable that all of the 
rich people are going to end up with all the stuff. Right, right, <laughs> right. Because right. it's just you're going to have a kind of 80-20 principle in terms of the way that things work. Right. Right. So I think this is not actually endorsing or even about that. And so if we take right. that the talent is actually the word of God, the gospel doing its own work, the point is once you have the gospel in your hands, it will just keep growing and blessing and giving you more and more and you will super abound. And that connects to all those Pauline passages. It's it's really the gospel blessing, the the presence of the word of God in your life that multiplies. It's not about your talents, your self-development or your wealth or uh, radical inequality in society, but really about the specific work that the word is doing. And if you want nothing to do with the gospel, if you right, those who do not and, have. Right. Yes. Well, then what else is there? You know, when I often, you know, people I think this is just kind of human religiosity. We assume that God's biggest problem is violations of the law. Like, yes, God really hates violations of the law. He punishes them, but he also forgives them and restores people. He can work with that. But rejections of grace, what else is there? There isn't anything yeah. else besides grace except finally terror. And I think uh, the way I've become to read it more and more is when scripture talks about terror, it's not primarily about law violations. It's about grace contempt. And I think that's if if this whole story then is about what you are doing with the grace gospel word of God given to you, then the slave goes into the outer darkness where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth because there isn't anything else after grace except that. Yeah, because this this threat is not a threat of direct punishment by the master. Right. This is, oh, you did you wanted nothing to do with me and my money? Okay, well, then you're on your own out there, and it's a tough world out there. <laughs> right, right, right. So have at it. Yeah. Right? And, I that... mean, in a very precise sense, the this evil slave did not break any rules. This is not about, you know, going against the Ten Commandments or something. This is about contempt and rejection of the good thing that the master has and is willing to share and see grow, including giving the servant a chance. Yeah, in fact, lending an interest may have been a, would have been a violation of. Them. <laughs> yeah, right, right. And he would have been okay with that if you would just yeah. do something with it, you know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we'll find a way to get around that. <laughs> what I what I can't deal with is is uh, is your posture of what's mine versus what's yours. Yeah. That's part of what's going on here. Is that in verse twenty five, behold, you have what is yours. There's a fundamental mindset, right, that says there's, you know, we can divide the world up into what belongs to the Lord and what belongs to me. Right. Right. And Oh, and that means the servant is also saying, this is yours, but I am not yours. Oh, oh whoa. Okay. Whoa. <laughs> That'll preach. Oh, That'll my preach. goodness. Wow. Yes. 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 Because then even verse 30, 29 is so strange, that phrase, even what he has will be taken from him. It's like, well, he doesn't have anything. Why is it? Yeah, right. exactly. Right. That's He'll why it's under himself. darkness. It's right. kind of negation of negation. It's yeah. emptiness. There's a, that famous line from George MacDonald, the Scottish preacher, writer, theologian that C.S. Lewis loved so much. He said, I know where you're and, going. I was thinking yeah, this know, earlier. Right? Go, go, go do it. Yeah, I think right. it's where we should end. Yeah, go. Right. So there are those who, people who say to God, thy will be done. And then there are those people to whom God says, thy will be done. And in the yeah. end, condemnation is God letting you have your own will rather than you letting God have his own will. Yeah. So, yeah, you can go and have yours. Yeah. 
which you thought was you, and even that you're going to lose. And you know what? You're going to lose your teeth because if you gnash them long enough, they will be ground (laughs) down and you will just be gummy. (laughs) Oh, oh. Oh, leave it, leave it to a Lutheran to find a way to preach just the, 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 sorry to, to typecast you, but this is, this is delighting. It fits. Yeah. To be able to preach it, to to be able to start to articulate the, the, the structure of a sermon right now that is just, just a, a, you know, panagia of grace. It's just so grace and yet so threatening. (laughs) Like it's it's, it's, like that's very Lutheran. Totally, (laughs) and that's what our Calvinist friends never get. They can talk about grace, but somehow they don't have like the the juice, you know, like (laughs) a little mustard on it. That's like the alternative is just you know terror, you know. Yeah, horseradish. Let's go wasabi. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. It's that, and that's some. I mean, that's what I always felt in Luther is that he was like was like threatening me with grace or something like yeah, that right. you know it's and it's the there's some there's a power really there. high the that's stakes right are really high it's a matter think, of life and death that's right i think for luther i think for jesus i think for paul and it, it's so easy to hear that purely as threat but like i think the whole point is that grace is threatening until you give way to it right, and then right, it's good right, but until right. it gets to that there's no way avoiding like the the shock and the encounter that, you know, well, kills you and then and then makes you alive. But you get killed first. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, sorry to kind of zoom out to our traditions, but the, the funny thing <laughs> to our listeners just for a moment is that so I'm, you know, I, I come from this long Wesleyan tradition, multi-generational Wesleyan ministers tradition. Sarah comes from a long multi-generational Lutheran tradition but we met each other at a reformed seminary. Right. And so, you know, and there's this way of like, there's this reformed instinct that wants to always zoom out and say, look at this, right. This narrative that's all grace oriented. Right. Mm -hmm. So it's like the details are, they're right, but it's kind of like, it doesn't have the, 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 yeah, exactly. The oomph. Anyway, I just I I loved your read of this passage and it really clicked with me and and clicked with some work I've been doing in Matthew in terms of these final chapters. So it was really fun here pursuing this super abounding thing because, you know, my my Greek's average, but I did not recognize this at all. But now that you've pointed out how central this surplus motif is, you know, obviously that speaks right right to where uh, where I'd want to go anyway. But, yeah, there's there's a lot to be had here. Well, and that would be, that's, a, I guess, a little final comment to make for our listeners, especially if they're new to preaching or if they've been preaching for a long time and are kind of losing the losing the plot. The structure of our show can give the wrong impression that you like do exegesis and then you write a sermon. You know, it's like, no, this, this, this is, you do a little exegesis and then you start having a sermon idea and then you go back and do more exegesis, right? It's that. Because often what happens in a good Fresh Text episode is like a new exegetical question has been generated to go follow up on now that you know what the heart of the sermon is. And there were other things we discussed that you just kind of leave aside. Oh, I'll do those next time I preach this. You know, I got a whole lifetime to study this stuff, right? Yeah. And I think we both have instincts towards canonical exegesis, which is you don't have to stay strictly within Matthew you know, you should understand what Matthew's doing on his own grounds, but if jumping over to Paul or John or Second Peter helps you figure out what's going on, you're allowed to do that. Yeah, yeah. Just know you're doing it. 
you yeah, know? Right, right. So like I, with the superabounding, <laughs> I would look at the Mathean uses first mm. as illuminating of the text in front of us, right? But in terms of the conclusions we need to draw about what's true, why would we only consult Matthew? <laughs> 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 I mean, those are more definitive for interpreting Matthew. Right, but, right, right. But the job of a sermon is not to interpret the mind of the human author of that text. Right. Right. That's not the end. Right. Um, I think that's a really good entry point, but it's not the it's certainly not the purpose of a sermon. So, well, if you want to stay in Matthew, you can just deal with gnashing of teeth because he is yeah, clearly the expert. Had, but, but there were three or four super aboundings just yeah, in Matthew. Yeah. yeah. yeah so, yeah, I mean, yeah. even that alone was going to be interesting. So, yeah. Well, this was a blast, Sarah. I always love interpreting scripture with you. Thanks so much for being on the show. You're so, welcome. Tons of fun. Very, yeah. very inspiring and illuminating for me too. Good. Well, thanks to all our listeners. Thanks to uh, the Cult Collective uh, for producing and promoting the show. We appreciate it so much. Uh, thanks to Todd, Eric, and Tom for getting this show started all those years ago with me. Uh, can't imagine having this show start without you. Thanks, uh, yeah, to Sarah. This was great. It was really fun. So... And with that, we say, have a good preach and a great week. Bye-bye. Bye. God bless.